you can remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text this morning will be James 1, 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we now ask that as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We, we are desperate to hear from you. But we don't just stand out in the field or sit in our living rooms with the window open hoping that you would speak to us. We have your word, and we believe that in the scriptures you have spoken to us. Clearly, you have revealed yourself. And so I pray that as we sit under your word, we do so in submission, we do so with joy, and we ask that as you speak, that your spirit would convict us, that your spirit would encourage us, bring us down if we need to be brought down, lift us up if we need to be lifted up. Um, But I pray that we would receive your word and we would obey it. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Yeah, y'all can be seated. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Man, I love that last line of the goodness of Jesus. Cameron tripped us up. He was like, you thought, you thought we were going to finish that line right now, but we're going to pause for effect. I loved it. Man, Cameron, thank you so much for leading. Uh, we, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Did Cameron walk out? Maybe? <laughs> oh, water. Okay. <laughs> water. All right, so, well, Cameron's done. So I guess I'll be leading the closing song. You guys will 
be done as well. Uh, but seriously, Cameron, wherever you are, thank you, man, for, for stepping in and leading uh, so willingly, and uh, we're, we're grateful. Uh, for the summer, we've decided to walk through a book. Um, you know, the last book we walked through verse by verse was Jonah earlier in the, in the semester. And so we want to look at, at James. Our typical practice, as has always been here, is to alternate between Old and New Testaments and then alternate from genre to genre. And we're back now in what we call the Catholic epistles, the Catholic letters or the general letters. That doesn't mean that these are just for the Catholic church and don't, don't worry, I know that word's, I know it's scary, but um, it's just a universal letter, which all that means is that when James wrote this letter, he wasn't writing to one specific church speaking to specific issues that were happening in that church the way that Paul did for most of his letters. So you have the Pauline letters and then you have the general letters. And so James, you even see here, uh, you know, verse one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This isn't a specific church. James is the half-brother of Jesus. This is who the author is. And James uh, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so he is writing to Jewish Christians who are uh, spread out outside of Israel. He's writing to them. And so he's not writing to one specific body. He is writing to uh, Christians spread all over. And so that's why we call it a general letter. We're here because the last time we were in the New Testament, I believe we're in First Peter. We were in First Peter. And so we wanted to go back to uh, the book of James to spend the summer. We will, we will start James here at the beginning of June and we will take it all the way through the uh, end of July, maybe into early August. It, it fits well the way that we have uh, uh, divided it up and it may change uh, from week to week, but we'll send out a general preaching schedule uh, so that you guys know exactly where we're going. And here's what I have in mind for this James series. This is, this is why I love the letter of James. This book is, is a favorite among a lot of Christians, really because it mirrors the book of Proverbs in so many ways, and Proverbs is, is obviously really popular as well because you have a lot of imagery, you have a lot of metaphors, you, you have a lot of quotable um, lines, and actually people who uh, maybe only marginally familiar with Christianity or church stuff, whenever you talk to them, I, I, we, actually this week I was you know, talking to a, a guy who's not a believer and he found out I was a pastor, and so we started talking about church stuff and told him, he was like, how do you decide what to preach? And I was like, well, you know, the Lord does because he's given us his word and so we preach through his word. And we talked about how we were going through James and that, that dude who is not a Christian, he knew so many passages in, in the book of James. He was so familiar. He was like, oh man, chapter three gets me every time, gets me every time, like that one time I read it. But it, the book of James is really memorable. Like you only read it like one or two times and it sticks with you. So it's one of those books that, that is really familiar. But what I love about the book of James, and it actually surprised me. I think I, I, think I re realized this, but I didn't realize the depths of it when I was studying this week. It's actually hard to find a theology of the book of James, okay? The book of James is super practical, but in most of Paul's letters, he'll, he'll spend the first half of the letter laying out doctrine, laying out this is what we believe about Jesus, this is what we believe about God, this is what we believe about salvation. And then in the second part of that, he's, he goes into saying, now this is what it means for the church. This is what you're supposed to do. So this is what you're supposed to believe over here, and this is what you're supposed to do. And all of his exhortations are, are rooted in these, these doctrinal statements and truths. But if you read the letter of James, you'll read through it, and you'll find very little Christology. You, you won't find much about the cross of Jesus. James is telling us what to do. You need to do this. 
You need to do this. You need to do this. But he doesn't back it up with, you know, this is why you need to do this because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I'm actually afraid that there are people who, if they did not know the letter of James and they just read it as a sermon, if you took, if you took the letter of James as a sermon, they would consider it an utter failure because it doesn't connect back to the gospel in explicit ways. The letter of James is startling, especially to those of us that care about doctrine as much as we do. But that's why the book of James is so important for us because it is so practical. So the theme of James that a lot of scholars uh, seem to agree on is, can be summed up in one phrase, wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Uh, What I want us to reflect on this summer is, how can we bring our faith to bear on the world? How can we bring our faith to bear on our families? And, and at work, and with our friends, and in this city, when we're at lunch. Because the fear that I have is that our faith will remain in our head, or it will remain in our hearts, and no one will ever see it extend through our hands, through what we do. So the book of James is really just asking the question, what are we supposed to do not, not what are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do? James calls out that kind of hypocrisy where you have a faith that is not, we're going to see in chapter two, evidenced by works. You have to work, James tells us. He tells us what we are supposed to do. So that's, that's the question for us as, as we go throughout this series. What are we called to do? Faith, it works. Faith does. You know, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Bob, Bob Goff's book, Love Does. Our series this this summer, Faith Does. It does. Faith leads to action. And and we're going to be considering that. Um, Again, uh, James, written by James of Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus. There are a few places you can go if you want to see that. It's kind of cool. It's it's always cool whenever you have uh, someone who, where you can actually go to scripture itself to say, oh, that's who the, the author of this book is. We don't really have that ability to do with like the book of Hebrews, for instance. We don't, you know, there's no consensus on who wrote the book of Hebrews. But if you go to Mark 6, and then you go to Acts 12 and Acts 15, Galatians 1 and 2, you can see that, you know, it, it makes sense that James is the one who wrote this letter. And again, it's not one of those typical letters. He's not introducing anything new. He's not grounding his exhortations or teachings in anything theological necessarily. Um, it's not like Romans. It's not like Romans 1 through 11, theological groundwork, and then Romans 12 through 16, practical exhortations. The entire book of James is practical exhortations. What are we supposed to do? Um, just for your information, the book of James relies heavily on two primary sources. Two primary sources. Proverbs, especially verse, uh, chapters 1 through 9. If you read chapter, uh, Proverbs 1 through 9 and then you read the letter of James, you're going to see a lot of overlap. I mean, James was, he was a Hebrew, he was Jewish. He would have been very familiar with the book of Proverbs, so it relies heavily on the book of Proverbs. But it also, more so, and I, th- I think this is so interesting, more so than any other letter in the New Testament, the book of James relies not on what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, but what Jesus taught. So the the letter of James actually relies more heavily on the teachings of Jesus than any of the other 
books in the New Testament. You can, see, you can see it mirrored in so many ways, especially when you read the Sermon on the Mount and then you come to the book of James and you read the book of James. It mirrors in so many different ways. And then just something else that's kind of interesting about the, the book of James as we consider it, it was one of the last books that was accepted by the church as scripture. They, they debated over it, they struggled over it. Martin Luther, you know, years later, Martin Luther, like you'll read some of his stuff and you're like, this bro hates this book. He hates it, like, because, you know, for Martin Luther, he was so transformed by the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that you were justified not by what you do, not by your works, but by faith, that when he read in James that, that it requires works as well, he's like, this is not scripture. You know, it took him a while. He had to wrestle with it for a while to actually accept the book of James as authoritative scripture. Um, th- that's, that's why I love the book of James. That's why I love it. it it's something that is... It, it makes people like Martin Luther, like us, that are so in love with, with doctrine and so familiar with all the other places of Scripture to come to it and say, how are we going to wrestle with this? James 1, 1 through 18, though, uh, as, as Avery read, and as I hope you were, you were listening closely, you, you hear a lot about trials and you hear about temptations. You hear about trials and you hear about temptations. We talked earlier about how we don't leave our trials out there. We bring them in here. We don't act like that once you become a Christian, you're not going to face any trials. We want to be honest about that. James is honest about that. But James kind of forces us to ask four questions as, as we read these first 18 verses. Question number one, what is the purpose of trials? Question number two, how do we endure trials? Question number three, what is the end of trials? Or is there an end to the trials? Or what is the end to trials? And then question number four, who's responsible for the trials? Who's responsible? So what's the purpose? How do we endure? Is there an end? What is the end? And then who is responsible? So... Let's, let's tackle these questions one by one because I don't think there's anyone in this room that could doubt that we face trials of various kinds. We will meet trials of various kinds. And every time we do, it's like, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm always initially shocked. I don't know why. It's not like I haven't faced hardships in the past, but I'll face a new hardship and I'm like, what gives? You know, and I'm shocked again. And if, if that's you if, you, if you face that, I was actually reading back through my journals over, over the past year, and I just noticed early on, it's like, man, this, this bro, whoever that was like four months ago, he was surprised. Like, he was so surprised that, that he was having a hard time with something. He was so shocked. And then I look at Scripture, and I read this passage, and I was like, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be shocked. I shouldn't be surprised. We... We can hate it with everything that's in us, and we should. We should hate suffering. We should hate sorrow. We should hate sin. But we should never be surprised when we meet various kinds of trials. And how can we get this new perspective where we actually are able to meet our trials head on without being shocked? And how can we endure? That's why we're asking these questions this morning. All right, question one. It's so important. What is the purpose of trials? Let's look at the first few verses. So James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
that let's whoop, let's stop right there. That um, mm, that's weird when you're suffering and you read that. It almost feels insensitive, right? Oh yeah, you're you're suffering. Be happy. Be happy. Don't gloss over it. Don't gloss over it. Whenever you read something in scripture and you're like, man, that's really insensitive. Say it. That's really insensitive. It feels really insensitive. It helps you. It helps you meditate on these verses. Okay, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, now he's going to give the reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is the purpose of trials? First, we need to affirm God has a purpose for every single trial that you face. He has a purpose. It's not outside of his control. It's not beyond his sovereign rule over your life. God has a purpose in every ounce of suffering that you face, in every single trial that you face. He has a purpose. But I love this this honesty here. And whenever, whenever James was writing this, I'm sure it would have, I mean, it's not like he had to convince them that they were facing trials. And I don't have to convince you that you're facing trials. But just this first honest um, assessment, we will face trials that cause us to suffer. We will. So if, if you're here and you're fooling yourself and you think that because you became a Christian or if you become a Christian that your life is somehow going to turn around for the better, it, I'm sorry, it, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Um, I, you, you guys know where I'm from in eastern Kentucky. And I promise you that even though the prosperity gospel is not very prevalent there, if you started going and preaching that if you believe in Jesus that you will all of a sudden have a better life, I promise you people would flock to it. Because their lives are so bad. They're in utter poverty. And they're suffering. And so they're looking for something like that. Here's the problem. It's not true. It's not true. If you're not a Christian, you become a Christian today and you're in serious debt, you're still gonna be in serious debt tomorrow. Okay? Like, you're, you're sick. I can't promise you that the Lord's gonna heal you tomorrow. It's, it's, that's not how this works. Here's the promise. You ready for it? Here's the promise James gives us. You're gonna meet trials of various kinds. You will. You will. You will meet trials of various kinds. It's actually literally, if you literally kind of translated this over, it's, 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 it's saying essentially when you fall in with trials. When you fall in with trials. And doesn't it, doesn't it kind of seem like that sometimes? You just fall in. You fall in with these trials. You didn't see it coming. You didn't plan for it. And I'm not talking about like the consequences of sin. I'm talking about you just wake up one day and you get a phone call and your world is turned upside down. You fall into these trials. We will face trials that cause us to suffer. Later, we're going to see something as well. And I'm going to mention a little bit later, but the word that's translated here that can be translated as testing or trials or temptations, it's the same root word. It's the same root word, okay, that you get testing and trials and temptations here in James 1. Actually, the early church, the early church fathers, they wouldn't have even translated this as trials. They, they only use the word temptation all the way down. So what we can also say is not only will we face trials that cause us to suffer, but we will face temptations that entice us to sin. 
Oh, I know you know that. But maybe if you had, maybe if I had a greater awareness that every single day when I wake up, there will be trials of various kinds that I will face which will include temptation to sin every day. Every day. Do you wake up with that kind of like battle-ready mentality? And you don't have to get out of bed for the temptations to come, to entice you to sin. You will face them. You will face them. Now, what, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of all of these trials that we are going to face? Does God just have a sick sense of humor and he wants to see just how bad he can make it for us before we uh, return home to him? No, he has a specific purpose in all of our suffering, in all of the trials that we face. And that purpose is singular right here. It's Christian maturity that produces joy. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. The purpose of every single trial that you face, the trial that you are facing right now, the purpose in that trial is your maturity in Christ that produces joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So he says, when you meet trials, when, you, when trials come your way, when you fall in with trials, he says, count it a joy. It is a joy for you whenever you face a new trial because you know that through that, God is up to something. He is doing something in you and for you. And his reason here in verse three, for you know, I love that he says this because this is, James is a pastor, okay? He's a leader of the church and he's writing to some of his own people, I'm sure, in this group. He's writing to them. So he says, you already know this. You know this. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, okay, a few things. Trials first, test your faith. That's the first thing. Okay, so Christian maturity that produces joy, that's the purpose. And what we see here is that trials test our faith. And some of you can attest to that through personal experience. And if you think of this, when you think back to Matthew 4, we always think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus was tested in the wilderness, we can say. He was tested in the wilderness. These tests, even though it came in the form of temptation from Satan, from Jesus in that moment, in the overarching scheme of it, it was a test of the genuineness of his person, of his character, who he is. And every single time you face a Trial. It is a test meant to put the genuineness of your faith on display. How genuine is your faith? How does your faith work? Okay? How does it get to work? How do, you, how, do you, how do you take the faith that you have in your head and your heart through your hands? How do you see it? In part, by enduring trials. Because when you face trials, your faith will be tested. But secondly, trials strengthen your faith. So they don't only test your faith, they strengthen your faith. So whenever you don't balk away from it, whenever you're enduring and you're walking through with the Lord, trusting him as you're walking through this trial, whatever season of suffering that you're in, your faith will be strengthened. So when your faith is tested, your faith is strengthened. It produces steadfastness where your faith will be immovable. As, as you walk through something, if your life is super easy and you never face any trials, 
your faith will be very weak because you will feel self-sufficient. If you've ever, if you've ever had a moment, and, and we've had them, where you're talking with your spouse or your friend or you're just thinking or you're praying and you actually come to that point. Because in America, it's easy for us to be self-sufficient. It's really easy. There aren't a lot of circumstances that, that, that cause us to be in need of someone else. But if you've ever actually been in need, where if someone else didn't step in, you don't know, you don't know what's gonna happen the next day. You don't know if you're gonna have groceries the next day unless someone else steps in. It's in that moment that you begin to fully and deeply and truly depend on God. So if you are going through a confusing, frustrating season, whether it's relational or it's health-related, whatever it is, if you're facing that trial, count it a joy in part because in that you are going to be pushed to depend on the Lord like you never have before. And your faith will be strengthened. It will produce this steadfastness. But then finally, trials advance your sanctification. Because here's the goal of that steadfastness in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what he's saying is, don't balk from the trials, okay? Don't run from them. Don't abdicate responsibility because you're going through a hard season. He's like, no, stand firm. Because the Lord is working in you to bring your faith to completion and to bring you to completion. It advances your sanctification. So right here, at the beginning of this letter, James reminds his leaders that growth in the Christian life requires painful, painful, difficult work. Are you justified by faith alone in Christ alone? Yes. Okay, you cannot earn salvation. But does that faith evidence itself as being genuine by hard labor for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom? Yes. Following Jesus is hard. It is hard. Teenagers, children, it's hard. It's not, it's not just like, you know, getting baptized and now you're good and you just do the church thing. It's hard work. Okay, the Lord will see to it. And that's, that's what's so interesting. It's, it's a weird comfort, right? Because the only way for you to truly grow in your faith and actually progress in sanctification and progress in Christ-likeness is to endure trials. And it's the Lord who is sovereign over them. He will see to it that you suffer for the sake of sanctification. He will not allow you to waver in your faith just to keep you comfortable. Okay, he will bring you through and he will bring trials to you for the purpose of building you up in the likeness of Jesus. I hear it's the same way with like working out. I wouldn't know personally. But you know, if you wanna, you wanna get stronger, like you can't just, you can't just lift. I remember from high school back in those days, that's the last time I lifted weights. Um, Mitchell and I did it for like two days, um, but uh, you know how that goes. Um, Again, I say it's horrible placement with Planet Fitness, right beside Scarlet. It's like, it's just horrible. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> in the morning, you know, you're hungry, donuts, uh, weights, uh, you know, anyway. Um, but you cannot grow in fitness. You cannot become, you cannot, you can't grow in any way unless you go through pain. It, it is difficult. It is challenging. It is hard. Athletes know this. Athletes know this, the team that works the hardest typically can beat a team that has more talent, that hasn't worked as hard. That's, that's the way it works. So if you think that you are going to grow as a Christian apart from trials, 
I'm here to tell you this morning, you won't. So when you face them, count it a joy because there is a purpose. And the purpose in your trial is that you will be mature, that you will be mature in Christ. Some of you desire to be elders one day and you wanna, you wanna progress. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm mature in Christ or not yet. And then you face a trial, count it a joy because the Lord will be working in you to shape that character and to mature you and build you up so that you can accomplish and pursue that desire and that goal. The purpose of trials is Christian maturity that produces joy. Okay, so that's the purpose of trials. Our second question we wanted to ask is, Okay, so there's a purpose. It's still hard, okay? It's still difficult to endure. So how do we endure it? How in the world do we endure this kind of pain? If you may be asking me that yourself, you're like, okay, yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. Like, sure, it counted a joy. It's easy for you to say up there behind that big wooden pulpit. You can just go on the inside down here. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. Like, I could hide from you, you know? Like you, so, seriously, it's really big. Then you may be thinking, that, you know, you don't know what I'm going through. And you may be saying the same thing to James and you may be saying the same thing to the Lord. You don't understand what I'm going through. How in the world am I supposed to endure this? Well, James gives us a couple things. And this is where the letter, when I first read it, I'm like, man, this really feels random. And that's why I was really tempted to only preach on like verses two through four and then only preach on verses five through seven and, or five through nine and then to like go on down. But I do see a connection with this here. Because I think that's a natural question for us to ask. What do we need to endure? Does God provide anything? And the answer is yes. God has provided means to endure trials. And he offers two of them here for us. So first, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Let me just say, when passages are that clear, take them, okay? Receive them. What does it say? If you lack wisdom, did he have to say if? <laughs> he didn't have to say if, like we lack wisdom. If, but if you lack wisdom, ask God to give you wisdom. And he even follows that up and he says, he's generous. He's generous to all without reproach. You don't have to be afraid to ask him for wisdom. He is generous. He wants to give it, and he will give it to you. If you ask for wisdom, God's going to give it to you. In the trial that you're in right now, whatever trial that is, you're likely going to need a lot of wisdom. You're going to need it. What a beautiful, simple word for you. Ask for it. Ask for it. And God, who is all wise and so generous, will give you the wisdom that you seek. So that tells us a couple things. First, wisdom is a gift from God. Godly wisdom comes from God. It's a gift from the Lord. So ask him to give it to you, and he will. Don't, don't try to come up with, I, f I feel like, you know, it is, so, it is wise to ask for counsel from other people, right? Whenever you have a decision to make. I mean, it's, it's wise, but don't, don't replace wisdom from the Lord or prayer by, by talking to all these kinds of people about a decision that you need to make. No, the Lord is generous. He is kind. He is wise, and he wants to give you wisdom. So ask for it. Wisdom also is a view of life 
from the perspective of God. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom helps you see situations the way God sees them. It's, it's seeing the world through his eyes. A, a godly wisdom, that's, that's what it is. And so when you go down to verse six, he continues, he kind of qualifies it a little bit. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he is saying, ask the Lord in faith to give you wisdom. Do not doubt that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is able, that he is wise, that he is stingy. He, he, he will give. He will give you the wisdom that you seek. So ask him in faith. Okay, so then the second, the second thing he gives us. So first he says, ask for wisdom. How are you gonna endure these trials that will produce this Christian character, this maturity that will produce joy in you? You have to ask for wisdom because you're gonna, it's gonna be required of you. But second, um, verses nine through 11, he says there's something else that you need to do in order to endure trials. See yourself as God sees you. See yourself as God sees you. All right, let's look at it. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What is James saying here? And it feels really, really random. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know, I'll admit that. But I do see a connection here, especially related to wisdom. If wisdom is a gift of God's perspective on our lives and on the world and on our situation, which we will need in order to endure the trials that we face, then we need to understand that both wealth and poverty can warp our perspective of our lives in the world. Both wealth and poverty can warp our perspective of our lives in the world. Wealth can tempt us to think that we are self-sufficient. It can tempt us towards self-reliance. It can tempt us towards self-glory. Poverty can tempt us towards self-hate or shame, that we're not enough. Neither perspective is centered on our new life in Christ. Neither of those perspectives are. So, as it relates to trials, your wealth cannot protect you from trials. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much status you have. You cannot avoid trials. You can't escape them. You will face them. No matter if you are rich or if you are poor, you will face trials. So your, your wealth, your money cannot protect you from these trials. And on the other end, your poverty cannot doom you under trials. Okay, so you are not doomed because you are poor. That, that is a worldly perspective that creeps in. The gospel radically shapes up, shakes up our perspective on our lives. It totally changes the way that we look at our lives. We finally begin through the lens of Jesus. We finally begin to see ourselves as God sees us. God does not see us as rich or as poor and then make a decision on our lives or how to deal with us. No, he pushes us toward Christian maturity for the sake of joy in him by sending trials both to the rich and to the poor. 
because he cares that the rich and the poor each grow in the likeness of his son. So, if you are rich, boast in your humiliation before God. You see the distinction that he's making here? This is what you should care about. Yes, you you may be exalted on earth because of your wealth, but you are humble before the Lord. And if you are poor, then you may be humble, you may be humiliated in your life on earth, but you are exalted in Christ. So see yourself as the Lord sees you. If you are lowly, boast in the exaltation that is yours in Christ. And so it goes all, it goes all the way back to contentment. Contentment in God for your life is a product of godly wisdom and contentment is godly vision to rely fully on him. Fully on him. No matter how much money you have or how much you don't have. Fully on him when you face trials. Okay, so see yourself as God sees you. How do we endure trials? We use the means that God has given us and he's given us his own wisdom and he's given us this grace of the gospel that we can see ourselves as he sees us, this godly perspective. Okay, so the third question we wanna ask them, is there an end to the trials? They feel endless, don't they? Is there an end? If there is an end, what's at the end? What's at the end of this journey? It's, we face trials and then we're going along and everything's fine and then we fall into a pit. And then we, we get up and we recover and we, we go on and again, we fall in with these trials. We meet trials of various kinds, they're endless. They're endless and they change as we, as we grow older and as we grow in maturity. So what's at the end? Look at verse 12. He connects it all the way back to verse 2, bookends it very well. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There are so many treasures in that verse. You, You see a connection already that James is making between those who love God and those who work. Those who have right theology and those who work. You see this connection between those who love God, those who truly love God. They are the ones who will endure until the end. They are the ones who will remain steadfast under trial. And that man, that woman, that boy, that girl is blessed. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test. At the end, at the end, when you have withstood the test, trial after trial after trial, and you have remained steadfast because of your reliance on who you now are in Jesus and what he has done for you, There will be a crown. Here's what that tells us. One day, trials will be over. Maybe that's a word for someone here. You're in a trial, it'll be over. But not only that trial, but any other trial that you would ever face, one day, it'll be over. All trials end in blessing for God's people. All of them. There isn't a trial that you can face that will rob you of the blessing that God has for you at the end. 
All of them end in blessing. Trials are temporary. It doesn't feel that way. It really doesn't feel that way. But they are. They are temporary. But this blessing, this blessedness, this, this peace, that's why I love the, the song, The Goodness of Jesus, rest here in his wondrous peace. Rest here in the blessing of the Lord that he will bestow on his people. And I love what James is telling us. That's not gonna happen without endurance. But the faith that you and I have, one of the ways that faith does One of the ways that we put our faith to work is we endure trials of various kinds. And in the end, we will receive, like like the runner who finishes the race, and he receives, that's the crown of life that's that's being referenced here, not necessarily like a like a you know a golden crown. It's it's what they would receive when they when they win the race, the trophy at the end. We will receive that when we remain steadfast. And if you notice that story, this is the story of our lives. The story of our lives as God's people are those who will face trials and suffering and endure in the power of the gospel for the glory of God. And one day they will be no more and we will only receive blessing. That story of humiliation and humility leading to exaltation, that's the story of Jesus. You wonder why we have to face what we face? It's because we are connected to Jesus. We will face what he faced. When when Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh, he lived in his time on earth in a state of humiliation. He was nothing but humble in his life on earth. He fully submitted to his Father. He, He endured suffering of all kinds, died on the cross, And through that humiliating death, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus will one day be exalted. So it's through what Jesus has done that gives life and power to your story, whatever it is. Whatever trial you're facing, you can be sure that there is an end to it. And it ends in blessing and peace. Not because we've deserved it or because we've run the race really well, because that's what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So when you face trials, endure them looking to the end where you will receive nothing but blessing and reward and honor because of what Jesus has done. Exaltation is coming no matter how humiliating your life currently is. What is the end of trials? A reward. Okay, one more question. One more question. It's a fun one, Okay. Starting in verse 13, verses 13 through 18. So it's almost as if James takes a step back and his readers take a step back and now we can take a step back and we're like, okay, trials and temptations and the Lord is clearly sovereign in this. The Lord is working out his purposes in his people. He has a plan. So wait a minute. Who's responsible for trials and temptations? Who's responsible? All right. What can we say? Let's look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. I love that James thought to to bring this clarification in. It's so important because he's essentially saying, the Lord's testing you. Well, if he's testing me, does he tempt me? 
And he clarifies, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, that's one of my favorites. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All right, what can we say? First, God does test his people, but he never tempts them. God tests his people, but he never tempts them. We can look back. We're not going to look at it this morning. We don't have time, but you could look at the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. The Lord tested Abraham. You could look at the people of Israel in, in Exodus 16. The Lord tested them. You can look at Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32. God tests his people. So what's the difference? I mean, I've even admitted to you the Greek word, the root of it, it is the same thing. Testing, trials, temptations. What's the difference? What's the difference between tests and temptations, we even said, we can say that when Jesus went into the wilderness that he was tempted, that he was tested, that the Lord was in that. Because you know, the Lord sent him, right? It was the spirit of the Lord that sent him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. What's, what's the difference here between testing and tempting? And simply, we can just say the motivation. The motivation. The motivation behind test from the Lord is a desire for growth and godliness. The motivation behind temptation is a desire to lure into sin and rebellion against God. So here's what we can say. God tests his people for the purpose of refining their character. He will. He will test you. He will bring you into trials for the testing of your Character for the refining of your character. And you can thank him when that happens. But God's tests, and we don't need to shy away from this, sometimes they come in the form of almost unbearably difficult trials. But the only way we can count it a joy when we face these trials is knowing that they are always, always, sent from the Lord for the purpose of our continued growth in the likeness of Jesus. So, two conclusions. Since trials are from God, we can receive them as gifts. We can receive them as gifts of his refining grace. Since we know trials are from God, we can receive them as gifts of his refining grace. Here's what we can also say. Since temptation cannot come from God, we cannot blame him when we fall into sin. So we can thank him in a mysterious kind of way for the trials that he sends because of the effect that they have. But we cannot blame him when we fall to temptation because it is not the Lord who tempts. So one quick word on temptation then because James gives us a, a kind of a process here, right, of, of how temptation works. And again, if you're going to face, wake up in the morning and realize today I have trials ahead of me. Today I have temptations ahead of me so that you're no longer shocked 
whenever your faith is tested. Instead, you're able to go at it with the right perspective and endure for the sake of growing in Christ-likeness. You need to be aware of the process of temptation. How does it work? How does temptation work? Let's, let's just read what it says in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So four steps, right? There are four steps to temptation. First, you are lured. Okay? It's like, just think of, of Adam and Eve in the garden. You think, you think of Eve, she was, she was lured. She was lured by, by Satan. And so that's how temptation begins. You are enticed by something that is not of God. That's the first step. The second step is your desire. You are lured and you're enticed. James even says, by your own desire. So, so think of it. We always think of temptation as only being outside of ourselves. And you can resist temptation if you have the spirit in you. But that's only because the spirit is giving you a new desire, but the sin is also still in your heart. So every single time you are tempted, the reason you are tempted is because you have sin still in you. That's why you're tempted. Why is it enticing? You know? Why, why is it enticing? Why are you lured by something that is not of God? Because you still have sin in your heart. So James even says, we, we typically don't think of temptation in this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's why God can't be tempted. There is no sin in God. But there is still sin even in those of us who have trusted in Jesus and renounce our sin. That's why it's so important for these trials to be a means of God's grace to produce steadfastness that will one day have its full effect so that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And on that day, we will no longer be tempted because there will no longer be any sin in us. But for now, we are lured because we still have sinful desires lurking in our hearts. You need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of the sin that is lurking in your own heart so that when you are tempted, the first question you need to ask is, why am I even desiring that? And stop it at step two, because if you don't, step three always comes. Sin. Sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then what happens? That desire that you have, hook, line, and sinker, you're caught. You're caught. When it's conceived, when that desire is conceived in your heart, it gives birth to sin. And you will sin. And then the fourth and final step in this process of temptation is death. Temptation leads to sin, and sin leads to death. But, so with that warning, I love verse 16, and this is the word that that I have for you too. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is how it works. Don't be deceived by sin. Don't, Don't take it lightly. Don't take the temptations and the struggles that you have, don't take them lightly. Know what they are and avoid them. Know what they are. 
Because when that desire conceives, or is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin will lead to death. So do not be deceived. But then the good news in verse 17. So the, clar- the clarity here too. So don't blame God when you sin. Because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what can we say? Every good or everything good comes from God. Every good thing comes from God. And everything from God is good. Everything. When he sends trials your way, it is a gift of grace from your Father who is above. Every single thing that you receive from the Lord is good, even if your experience of it is painful. Every single thing that he sends is good and it is for your good. So, what is our hope then? What is our hope to endure trials? What is our hope to face temptation with victory over it? Because we're gonna fail. You may have failed this morning. You may have given in. You may be walking through those steps like, yeah, I was lured and it did, it did entice the desires, my sinful desires, and I sinned. How can we avoid death? How can we continue to sin and have hope that we're not going to die in our sin and be separated from God forever? Because Jesus, God in the flesh, who was fully tempted yet never sinned, ever sinned, not once, took your place, took your sin, took your death, He was lured in the flesh, yet he did not give in, and he did not sin. And yet, step four, death, he did take that. He did take that, because his sin was, or your sin, sorry, that was was scary, not his sin. (laughs) Your sin was counted as his sin, and he suffered the punishment that you deserve for your sin. And because he overcame both sin and death in his victory on the cross and by walking out of the tomb, you can face any trial that the Lord sends with joy, with joy, knowing that he is working to make you just like that perfect sinless Jesus. And you can live with confidence that when you face temptation, even if you fail, that you are clinging to and trusting in the Savior who never did and who conquered the death that you should have received and should receive for your sin. Everything good comes from God and everything from God is good, which brings us to this table. As Christians, we, we celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper because it's commanded in Scripture. It's, it's a sacrament of the church, which, which means that whenever we come and we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember his death, the, the, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed on our behalf. And, and then we look at our own lives and we reflect And we repent and we reconcile because of what Jesus has accomplished. That's what he accomplished for us. And then we look forward. We look forward to that day where there will be nothing but blessing and no more trials.
we celebrate that in the fact that Jesus overcame. Um, so if you're new here, the way that we do this, we, we all come and receive the elements and we take them back to our seats. We, we ask that only, only believers, so if you are a Christian, you don't have to be a member of this church to, to celebrate the table with us, but you do have to be a Christian. You have to have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. But if, if you are a believer in this room, we welcome you to the table. Um, we, we would invite you to come and receive the elements and then return back to your seats and uh, pray together. So we're not, I'm not gonna pray over you uh, with each step, as, as some of you may have done, but what we're gonna do is gather as friends and family, pray over the elements, and then take them together, and then then we'll move forward. Um, The way we're going to receive it, just in case we forgot from last month, uh, we'll start with the back, back rows, and come down the middle, and then go out the sides like that, and just each row come down, and we'll we'll exit that way. You'll figure it out. Um, So let me pray for us, and uh, and then we'll move forward with that. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, The book of James is, is a very convicting book because it is so practical and it gets right to the heart of our sin and it gets right to the heart of our suffering and especially this morning as we've considered the various trials that we will face, I pray that we will face them with joy and confidence in you because you will, you will bring us to completion. We have confidence in that, but you will use any means necessary and you will use trials and suffering to help refine us into the image of your son. So help us to take joy in that and, and help us to rely on one another in this faith family. You have called us together to face and endure trials together. So help us to pursue and ask for for your wisdom, not just by ourselves, but with one another. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. And help us, together as your people, to long for the day when trials will be no more because sin will be no more. When we live in your glorious presence forever. And so as, as a suffering people, I pray that we in the power of your gospel, would go into this city with this good news that we do not hide from the fact that we live in a painful, fallen, broken world and we are not immune to the suffering. So help us to go to those who are suffering and tell them the story of Jesus because only he can adequately answer the suffering and injustice and evil in this world. So help us to be among the first to be witnesses of this gospel truth. And Father, as we come to the table now, we celebrate with gladness the peace that we have with you because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And I pray that that you would use this as a means of grace to us, that we would pursue peace with one another in this body, that we would be united as we are united with you in Jesus. And Father, I pray that, that you would bring reconciliation where that needs to happen. And I pray that as we look back and we look in and we look forward, that you would use this table to bring nourishment to our souls, all for the sake of your sons.